Father, thank you for your word that comes to us in these pages of Holy Scripture. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes these words come alive and applies them to our minds and our hearts and our will. So we pray that you would do that work for the sake of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to be back after last week. A number of us, uh, clergy and a couple of others, were at our annual uh, diocesan meeting in Colorado. And uh, the theme of this gathering in Colorado, our diocesan meeting, was discipleship. Every year they have a theme, and so the talks and the workshops are related to uh, a particular theme. And this year it was discipleship, so those of us who are coming back from Colorado, we got back on Wednesday, our, our minds are filled with uh, teaching on discipleship. And so uh, I'd like to talk to you about that uh, this morning and connect it to our passage, our gospel reading. The title of my message is To Be Like Christ, Behold His Glory. In order to be like Christ, we we must behold His glory. And uh, so what I want to do in this talk is, is talk about discipleship in, in three, three ways. Talk about the what of discipleship. What is discipleship? How do we become and grow as disciples? And, and why does it matter? Why, why should we be concerned about this topic of discipleship? Well, um, one of the writers on discipleship, uh, an influential writer over the last several decades, is a man named Dallas Willard. And he wrote a book called The Great Omission. And he was talking about the great commission that Jesus gave the church in Matthew 28 when he said, uh, go into all the earth and make disciples. And Dallas Willard's point was, is oftentimes in the life of the church that can be omitted. Here is the task that the risen Christ gave his church, his disciples, to make disciples, and oftentimes that can be omitted. Um, Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make church members, although we hope that church membership connects with discipleship. Uh, Dallas Willard in this book, The Great Omission, says something that's pretty uh, searching for people like me. He speaks to ministers. He speaks to clergy. And he says, is your number one aim to make disciples or is it to just keep an operation running? Jesus calls his disciples to be disciple makers. So what does it mean to be a disciple? And again, drawing on Dallas Willard, he says it involves two elements. First, a desire. The desire is to be like Jesus. A disciple is somebody who wants to be like his master or his teacher. To be like Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, Matthew 10:25, A disciple is not above his teacher. This is verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. 
And so here's a question for us, here's a question for me. Do I want to be like Christ? Do I want to be more like Christ? Do I want to reflect more of the character of Christ? Do I want to have the faith of Christ? Do I want to grow in these things? That is the desire of a disciple. Do you desire today to be like him? The second thing that Dallas Willard says about discipleship is that it involves a decision. So you have the desire and then you have the decision. And, and, and with, with the, the decision to want to be like Christ, you begin to uh, develop habits and actions to arrange your life so that you can grow to be more like him. Because that is the goal. Uh, this this evening we will watch a couple of football teams play, and you're watching men who have basically given their life uh, to one goal, and that is to get this Vince Lombardi trophy. They've hit the weight room for years and years and years. They've been on the practice field um, for years. They watch their nutrition. Their mind is filled with all kinds of plays in the playbook. They're dedicated to this one thing. They've arranged their life for this goal. And, uh, and that is to be the drive of a disciple, to be like Jesus and to arrange our life so that we can grow in fellowship with him and in likeness to him. This is a challenge, isn't it? This is such a challenge in our world today because there are other desires that we have. The world tries to influence us to pursue other things that our own sinful desires uh, will draw us away from Christ and this primary goal of discipleship. So how do, we, how do we grow in this desire? Where does it start and how do we grow in it? Well, again... Um, it begins by beholding the glory of Christ. Uh, seeing the beauty, and as we sang about, the majesty of Jesus, which is both um, attractive and also awesome in the sense of fearing and reverence, reverencing who he is. Beholding the glory of Christ. And, and we see that uh, this is what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration with the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, these men would become pillars of the church. And Jesus has just told them six days prior to this. You see it says, and after six days. Well, what happened six days prior? Jesus had told them some sobering things. He told them that uh, he was going to suffer as the Son of Man, he said in Mark 8.31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But that wasn't the end of the story. After three days, rise again. But first, he had to go through the suffering. And you know the story. Peter rebuked him. This is, this is not what the Messiah is to do. Peter had confessed that that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. But in Peter's mind, the Messiah was, 
was to be somebody who conquered others, not suffered at the hands of others. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter. He rebuked Peter with these words, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have on your mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Jesus is saying, and it becomes clear as the gospel unfolds, that it was through his suffering, this was God's plan to bring about salvation to the world, to pay for the sins of the world. This is the plan of God, and Peter wants to derail this plan. No, suffering is part of the plan. The cross is part of the plan, Jesus is saying. But then he says something else. If you would follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be like me, again, the definition of a disciple is to be like Christ. Jesus says, if you or if anyone would come after me, he also must take up his cross and follow me. The servant is not above his master. The way of following Jesus involves self-denial. It involves not living for our sinful desires, but by the grace of God dying, uh, dying in these sinful desires, or to these sinful desires, rather, and seeking to love others and live sacrificially. That is the way of the cross. And Jesus says, if you would come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me in this way. This is a hard sell, isn't it? This is a difficult thing to follow, to take up the cross. Well, what is going to keep them going? What is going to keep them pursuing following Christ and, and, and following him even if it cost them their life as it did in many cases for these disciples. Well, they need to see the glory of Christ. They need to see Christ's glory. And so this is what happens. Uh, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John and leads them up, it says, a high mountain by themselves. A lot of scholars think that this was Mount Hermon, which is up in the north in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And this mountain is, about, is over 9,000 feet. Uh, not quite as high as the mountains that we saw out in Colorado, which are typically over 10,000 feet, but, but pretty high. I don't know if you've ever hiked those mountains up in Colorado, gotten into 9,000, 10,000 feet elevation and gone up the mountain. Well, if you've done that, you know that involves a lot of kind of huffing and puffing. It's a bit of a struggle. And you can imagine Peter, James, and John following Jesus, huffing and puffing up this mountain and wondering what's going to happen. These are Jewish young men. They know their Bible history. They know that mountains in the Old Testament are places where men of God encountered God in powerful ways. And they're probably thinking about Elijah. It was on a mountain that God spoke to Elijah from the Mount of God in a still small whisper. And of course, most famously, it was on a mountain that God led Moses up to receive the Ten Commandments. And we, um, in the Old Testament in Exodus, we see the, that the, the cloud of, of God's presence covered the mountain and, and Moses entered into this cloud. And there was thunder and there was lightning and the sound of a trumpet. It was an awesome sight for the people of Israel to behold. And then when Moses came down the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of of God, and he had to veil his face when he talked to the people. It was clear that Moses 
was hearing from God. God wanted to make it clear to the people that Moses was hearing from God, that Moses had been with God, and they need to listen to Moses because he was giving them the word of God. And so all these things, these, these, uh, these images from the Old Testament kind of come together in this story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus leads them up to this high mountain by themselves, and it says that he was transfigured. In Luke's account of this, it says that he was, he was transfigured. His, his form changed. This supernatural event happened uh, while he was praying, Luke tells us. While he was praying, there was this, this change. The appearance of Christ changed. Before them, it says, and not only was he transfigured, but look at verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. OxyClean couldn't get it this white. Nothing on earth could. This was something supernatural. And you remember again that Moses' face shone with the glory of God. As he encountered the presence of God, he was reflecting the glory of God. But here, the, the glory of God, the radiance of God is, is not something that's uh, coming on Jesus. It's as if it's coming out. It's radiating out. This divine glory coming from within. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 tells us that in Daniel's vision of God, the ancient of days, it says that his uh, clothes were white as snow. So what is this saying to us about Jesus? This is a symbol of Jesus' divine nature. The divine nature, they're getting a picture. It's as if God is removing a veil and they're seeing Jesus' divine nature as the Son of God. Getting a glimpse of that. And then um, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Elijah represents the prophets and Moses represents the law of God. And here the law and the prophets are witnessing to Jesus or there to bear witness to his divine glory. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us that we're here. Let's, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, he didn't know what to say. Uh, Peter was one of those who would uh, speak the first thing that came to his mind. And, and here we see it again. And Mark tells us the reason why he was saying these things was he was terrified. They were all terrified by this sight, the supernatural sight of the glory of Christ. And here again is an image of a cloud hearkening back to what happened on Mount Sinai. But here the Father speaks. A voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. On Mount Sinai, God said, listen to Moses. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God is telling people to listen to Jesus. And Jesus' glory is unique. Jesus' status is unique. Elijah and Moses disappear and Jesus only is left standing. He is the unique Son of God. Some people would read this passage and say, uh, this is such a strange supernatural thing, and many people would be skeptical. Uh, the, the average person probably on the street would say, these things are 
so fantastical, it's hard to believe that they actually happened. But did you notice what Peter said in our reading from his epistle as he nears the end of his life? He's aware that some people are going to have a problem believing this story. And he says, we did not follow cleverly designed myths, but we ourselves were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this divine glory on the mountain. We heard the voice of the Father. And so the New Testament writers, are they understand that people would be skeptical, but they were in a position, these apostles, of doing what you and I would do if we saw something like this. We would have to tell people about it. We would want to write about it. We would want to pass it down to our children and our grandchildren, and it would be up to them if they wanted to believe it or not. But the question is, do you believe the eyewitnesses? And Peter is saying this was a turning point for him. In fact, uh, John in John chapter 1 says that we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And some people think that he's hearkening back to this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. What does it mean to see the glory of Christ today? We're not privileged in this life. We walk by faith, not by sight. After this life, we will see if we belong to Jesus, our faith will become sight. But what does it mean today for us to see the glory of Christ? John Owen, a great Puritan thinker, his name came up at this synod meeting quite a bit. He he said that to see the glory of Christ, listen to this, is to see God in him. To see God in him. So that when you see the love of Christ, You're seeing God's love for you. When you hear the wisdom of Christ, you are hearing God's wisdom for you. And in this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. But the Spirit can bear witness to us as we meditate upon the love of Christ, as we meditate upon His cross, as we meditate upon His Word. This is God speaking to me about His love. This is God giving me his wisdom. That is to see, Owen says, the glory of Christ. And as we see his glory more and more, as we interact with his word, as we worship him, as we gather together like this and praise him, we see more and more of his glory and we can be changed. And we can grow to want to be more like him. You see, that's how change happens. It's, it's, it's as we are attracted to a greater glory, as our affections, as our love begins to shift away from things that would keep us apart from God to Christ. There was a story told in this synod meeting, uh, one of the speakers named Vaughn Roberts, who's a pastor in Oxford, and he did the consecration of the suffragan bishop, like the assistant bishop. So they brought in some big guns to do this. And he sounded like an Anglican uh, priest. I want to tell you, he had a beautiful British accent. And he told this story. He said, you know, there's a story of a teenage son, young teenage son, who was addicted to video games. And his parents tried everything to get their son off the video games. 
He's playing the PlayStation. He's on the phone, constantly on these games. It's taking up a lot of his time. His, his grades are beginning to slide backwards. And so they, they try they try the lecturing and, and, you know, why this is not good for you and it's going to diminish your attention span. And they, they try the punishment. And if you, you only have so many hours a week on games and if you exceed these hours, then you're going to be grounded. Nothing was happening. He was not changing. And then all of a sudden... They noticed he wasn't as interested in games anymore. There had been a change. He, he wasn't constantly going to the video games. He was going out. What do you think happened? He met a girl. <laughs> he started to, his heart began to be attracted by a greater glory, a different kind of love. His affections changed. And that's how change happens in our life as disciples of Christ. As we behold the glory of Christ, as we grow in this, and it is something that happens over time, it is something progressive. We become more like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says it like this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So from degree to degree, you see, it's slow progress over time. We can change. And many people in this room, you can testify to the change that's been made as you have sought to know Christ more and to grow in fellowship with Him and to love Him more. Some of you can talk about the change over time. Once you were a bitter and angry person, now you're more loving. Once you were anxious, now you are more trusting of what God is doing in your life. Once you were in the grip of all kinds of addictions, now you're walking in greater freedom. Not that we're perfect, it's from glory to glory until we see Christ. But change is possible Peace and love and patience and kindness, these fruits of the Spirit can grow in our lives as we fellowship with Christ and behold His glory. We see Christ's glory when we see God's love for us in the cross of Christ. We see His glory when we hear His word, when we pray and fellowship with Him. When we worship together, we behold something. There's something that happens as we come together in the presence of Christ to praise Him for who He is. There were wonderful times of, of worship at the Synod meetings as 300, 400, I think at the consecration there might have been 500 people in this room gathered around to praise and glorify Christ. It was a little appetizer, a little taste, I think, of what heaven would be like. We were caught up in glorifying Christ together. And so I want to, um, as, especially as we enter into the season of Lent, which is a time set apart for us to get closer to Christ, to ask these questions, do, do I want to know Christ more? Do, do I want to be more like Him? Where are the, the places in my life where I need to grow in Christ-likeness? Maybe it is in patience. Maybe it is in anxiety. Maybe it is in fear. Maybe it is in lust. Maybe it is in coveting the things of this world. Are there things in your life that you say, uh, I, need to, I need to have Jesus help me with these things so that I can become more like Him and grow in greater faith? 
You know, the world says that happiness is not found in following anyone else, but in following your own desires. This is the message we get in the world. That true freedom is not in denying yourself, but indulging yourself. Not in constraint or commitment, but casting off commitment and pursuing freedom. And pursuing, the word is, authenticity. The Christian gospel teaches us something else. It's a paradox. In order to find true life, you die to yourself and give your life to Christ. I read an article while I was away that kind of illustrated the contemporary mindset of this idea of pursuing happiness and freedom by casting off restraint. It was actually about a woman. I don't know if this is a good illustration or maybe it's not quite appropriate, but I'm going to go for it. There's a trend in some circles in America to practice what's called open marriage, polyamory. And, and this was, preview, or no, this was uh, reviewing a memoir of a lady named Molly who was in an open marriage. And she had bought into this idea. This is just an illustration of how some people live out this idea that I'm going to be happy by casting off restraint and indulging my desires. And so this memoir that she, uh, she published was an account of her marriage and her escapades as she pursued this libertine lifestyle. And as the story went on, you see that this lady was degrading herself and was feeling the guilt and shame of it. And as you can imagine, there was great tension in her marriage between herself and her husband. And she was carrying this guilt and this shame and this sense of degradation. But she was trying to convince herself that this is what true freedom looks like. And so she had this turmoil and conflict. And at the end of the article, the scene is that this lady, Molly, is talking to her therapist. And her therapist says, are you worried at all that open marriage is giving you an illusion of freedom rather than the real freedom that you long for? And with that, Molly nodded her head and began sobbing and breaking down. So many people in our culture today are buying into this lie that true freedom is casting off restraint and giving into your instincts. The Christian gospel is that true freedom is found in God renewing his image in us. A relationship with God who made us. And being restored in this image and the likeness as we follow Jesus Christ. This is the freedom that I want to grow in. This is the freedom I want you to grow in. And this is the message I want us to tell a world that is turning its back on this, but needs to hear it. Happiness is found in following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us to grow in these things ourselves. As I heard at the Synod meeting, it was convicting to me. You can't disciple others unless you're a disciple of Jesus. You, you can't talk about these things and the freedom and the joy and the peace unless you're growing in these things. 
And so help us, Lord, as a congregation, and especially those of us in leadership here, to press in to know you more, Lord Jesus, and to be changed by you. I pray that you'll create in us all a desire to know you more, not to be content with just church membership or church leadership, but being disciples of Christ who disciple others. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.